Well, hello there. Well, hello there. Um, well, where do I begin? <laughs> well, where do we begin? Do you think we should open every episode now? Just, well, where do I begin? <laughs> hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Sour Popcorn Podcast. We're in a little bit of a different uh, location today, so sorry if it's a bit echoey or even if it sounds better than normal. Mm. Um, we won't know. Uh, but yes, welcome back to another episode. I'm Jake. I'm Zach. What's up, party <laughs> people? We're here with the news. Some long-awaited stories. Um, also, in our previous episodes, we were going to try and do weekly episodes, like weekly reviews of The Walking Dead. Uh that's not really worked out, especially with the hiatus and everything. And also because the show's not very good at the minute. The show is essentially a terminal patient on life support. It is kept alive by the certain actors it's got on it, and it's just waiting to be plugged off the air. And that leads us into our first story of um, Andrew Lincoln, as I think it's officially confirmed now. Yeah, it's uh, officially confirmed. Officially confirmed, he will be in nine. He's going to be in, I think, half of nine. Yeah. yeah. He's going to be in like nine episodes of the next series of The Walking Dead, and then he shall be departing. We don't know if this will be a death, if this will be just a walk off into the sunset, or because it will probably then officially become the Jeffrey Dean Morgan show, even mm. though. Uh, Norman Reedus is being paid stupid amounts of money to yeah, become the leading man. Uh, I think he's going to jump ship too, I think. What, after a series or something? He'll be like, this isn't much fun without him anymore. Either that or when certain things like Death Stranding come out, which are going to explode, I think he's going to have a hell of a lot more options. People are going to see him in a different light and people are going to want him on other projects. And I think he's got the artistic leeway to kind of go walk about because he's kind of got that second birth with the fame of The Walking Dead. He can do as he now pleases. Yeah, like that was his first big out there. Everyone now know who Norman Reedus yeah. is. But yeah, so... Would you want... Death Stranding will make him on everyone's plate, like like it or hate it. Uh, would you want him to die or would you want him to just like, walk off into the sunset well, really I think ambiguous. it's my favourite character on the show it's always been the most interesting character that I enjoy and it's for that reason it's got to be a death because it just doesn't equate with the character in any sense of the word that he would just walk off and leave those people he wouldn't leave Michonne he wouldn't leave that community that he's built I don't think he could in any sense the entire arc of the show his character has been his willingness to become a leader or not and to then just say oh, I'm going to throw it away I'm going to walk away isn't going to work and even still it's just going to repeat what they did in season 4 don't want to be a leader anymore let the council deal with it it's just if they don't kill him off and give him a spectacular death it's kind of just replaying old themes that we've worked on before and it will be done in an even worse way when they get rid of the character and do you think it was AMC pushing for the departure or it was more Andrew Lincoln pushing for it like because he wants to move on to other, other projects because I know AMC isn't very keen on other actors mm, yeah, definitely. doing things I mean Lauren Cohan jumping the ship as well she's doing yeah, that exactly. new ABC series I think it was more on his from I think there's like we've said a marked change in what the show is becoming what it's about the quality of the content that they're showing and I think you've got to also take into the fact that he lives a difficult life Andrew Lincoln because he lives in Britain and yet he has to commute his, like, his wife and his kids out to America like for most of the year to like film The Walking Dead and then he has to come back to Britain 
readjust to that sort of life so it's a difficult life to be doing that every year for so many months it's like right living here living there it's difficult on the kids so you can imagine on that front that's a little bit in his mind but I think as well the AMC wouldn't be so desperate just to kill off the lead like it's such a difficult and risky move to to, in the case of Spartacus I know they didn't kill off their lead their lead unfortunately passed away and they had to replace him but it's always got that weird and jittery effect of it's like yeah we don't want to get rid of this person that we have been with for so long. I mean, it's what killed Primeval, in my opinion, when they yeah. killed off the main character, I think it was Cutter, his name was, yeah. and that kind of bastardised the show on that front. So I think they wouldn't do the same with AMC. Like it sort of works on shows like Game of Thrones because they have oh, so yeah, many yeah. other mm. points that they're like showing and working out um, and they're focusing on, whereas with Walking Dead, while they do have a lot of other characters that they're showing, at the end of the last series, they all sort of come together and now it sort of seems quite it would make sense to me if Lauren Cohan was staying on the show yeah because then they've spent the previous season like building up an arc for her it's like I'm going to take over Rick is clearly no longer able to do this anymore and then you can spend some time with the ramifications of her like usurping Rick from power and then do something interesting with that but the fact that they're not it is just it just reeks of he wants off the boat while it's not sinking fully yeah no, I think he can go out then pretty much on his terms. He's happy with what he's done with it. And I think as a way as it works, it kind of has completed the arc for Rick. Like, Carl's now dead. In fairness, we've had the most interesting parts of the comic, his character play out. What's to come is more with, cool with other people. So if they do want to get rid of him, it is a prime moment because I think you've gone as far as you can with the character in ways. And I think with Andrew Lincoln, he's such a strong performer, mm, but he's yeah. known for, like, primarily, obviously he's had, like, Teachers and small other series, but he's known for Love Actually and The Walking Dead. Yeah. And I think, not only does he want to go on to other projects, he wants to be the face of The Walking Dead while it was good, because I think he's seen that it's going downhill, mm. and it has gone quite a way. And I think he's like, I just want to do other things as well. This is a perfect jumping-off point. Yeah. There was... In every previous series, there was always like that one big, great Andrew Lincoln moment. And it's like, wow, this guy's a hell of an actor. Like, this isn't a democracy anymore. Like, the crying with Carl. There hasn't been like that moment for a season. Season eight didn't have one for me. The last time he really gave that brilliant, like, oh crap, this is that guy moment is maybe the end of season seven when he's like face to face with Negan. Oh, I'm going to kill you. And he's repeating that. Or maybe when he first. I'd say the with first Megan. episode with like the snot bubble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's like fully just a gone man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we just haven't had that from him, and that's not a bash on Andrew Lincoln, but I personally don't think they're giving him enough time to the character anymore. Like they're becoming very mm. interested in focusing on the Negan character, which you have to to establish that character, but at the same time, it is Rick's story. I want to see Rick's story, and that's where the later part of season four didn't work because you didn't focus on Rick very much. I think with the ratings and viewership, it could go one of two ways. Either people would be like, okay, the show's been declining in quality. This is a great jumping off point now that Andrew Lincoln's gone. Or if it's, I want to see what they're doing without him. And Mm. then the viewing figures may go up for a bit, but then that may only last an episode or two. Depends how good it is. And I think it's the fact that they're now season one and two and partly bits of three and four worked in the sense that they weren't reliant on the comics they did their own subversive things you didn't know what was coming whereas now it is nearly nail on point apart from like Carl's death 
it's so on point with what it is it's become a very predictable show whereas if something like Fear the Walking Dead you can end this show but you can keep that going which leaves you open to just bring in entirely new avenues because you haven't got an established medium you've then got to adapt and work off of yeah. if they then want to move I mean I know they've done it with Morgan like I can't I wouldn't be surprised if they did it with the likes of Carol or Michonne and they move them on to Fear the Walking Dead because they are the fan favourites they'll boost that show up if they know they're going across and then you've got a new platform which to keep certain characters that you love and then tell new stories so you don't feel attached and you don't feel kind of like constrained in what you can do creatively which I think is what the big problem for The Walking Dead is at the moment. Yeah, yeah, like it has been struggling for a while. And it's just the fact that they've been so stuck on the all-out war storyline, like the building up of the fight and the, the mentality of, oh, I've got to lead this war. And it's kind of been spent too long on that and it's gone a bit stale. I mean, like, it's still, like, not a completely shit show. It's oh, yeah, just... it's by no means Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But there's just so many, like, simple ways where it could just pick things up a bit. Yeah, like, when they did the Morales reveal, that guy came back. That's a perfect opportunity to do so many interesting things, and he's just gone in, like, ten seconds. And it just kind of reeked of what this show has become. We need to get in the shock factor. Like, when they did it last season... What what can they talk about each episode on Talking Dead? And it's like, instead of just focusing on a good story for that particular Mm. week, it's, oh, what will Chris Hardwick say now? Oh, we shot Daryl in the shoulder. Is he dead? No, he's not. He's just been shot in the shoulder. It's just... It just reeks of fake out and just things that, in my opinion, a lesser show would have to resort to. Although, I am going to put some faith in the new showrunner and definitely yeah, give yeah, them a yeah, chance. Yeah, definitely. But... Got to... I mean, I'm interested to see where it goes if they are doing this big time jump. I will probably tune back in for that, but it's going to have to do something really big to keep me impressed and I think the same with the cast because I mean you look at Danagura they can go places now (laughs) yeah they can really go places also if it is just a time jump do you reckon it could just suddenly like it shows in the mid-series finale Rick getting injured and then when it comes back he's nowhere to be seen presumed dead and then next series or in however many series time they bring him back do you reckon that's likely to happen or he's just gone? I think if he's gone, he's gone. The fact that there are rumours that John Burnfall's coming back for an episode, I think that signals very clearly like they're going to do something really constructive with that What's final like episode with for him. Tyrese's death. Yeah, they're like going ghosts or something yeah. like that. I think they'll do something like really big and bold. I think I'd be devastated if this wasn't an extended episode and then they yeah. really built into this character's going and Although they like they they really went into it on Carl's death and I still wasn't really feeling that like I felt more about Carl's death in the next episode when Rick and Negan were talking about it on the phone that's when I felt the impact Mm. of Carl's death rather than the actual episode where he died I was just thinking okay I should be more upset about this Mm. I but think I think it's every series where with where The Walking Dead starts to amp up again and then a bit of news is coming out. Every series it's like, Oh, John Bernthal's coming back for a scene. Yeah. It's like is he? I mean hopefully this time it's true because he's fantastic in the role. But yeah. Well I just hope that this death, which I think it will be, kinda of signals a return to the semblance of anyone can die because you made the point about Game of Thrones earlier. That is still a show eight seasons in where anyone can die like yeah. Brewing can die Jamie can die and you can expect that and you can feel okay with it 
The Walking Dead used to be that show, and it hasn't been for a very long time. Like big people don't get killed off that much anymore. Especially because so to go back to it would be good. Oh, sorry. Especially because they release actor information. Like if they hadn't announced anything about Andrew Lincoln leaving, if he then did die, everyone would be in awe. Yeah, be like, be, what? After this many yeah. series, he's finally gone. However many viewers you'd lost would instantly jump back in just to see that happen. Because that's such yeah, a like shock. it would be such a shock to just see it. Whereas because of this news cycle and them needing some attention and everything, is it, it it makes the show lose its impact because mm. people can sort of guess what's happening and what's coming because of the news and what actors are billed in what episode. Yeah, I think at best we'll remember The Walking Dead for the highlights. Which is what I try and look at it on with, like the yeah. positive moments and the great series one, two, two, terminus, that sort of thing. Yeah, the good old days. In my day, The Walking Dead was good. <laughs> we um move on from the announcement of a cast member leaving to well now, a really big cast member returning to a major franchise, like the fan favorite. Billy Dee Williams' Lando is now coming back to Star Wars Episode 9 which is Woo! expected we know because he cancelled a lot of like events to appear in it but I'm happy he's coming back I think it'll be quite good yeah especially seeing as uh, Donald Glover recently came in and was absolutely fantastic as Lando mm, yeah, it'd like, be brilliant for Billy Dee Williams to just come in and show him how it's done yeah he's re-energised love for Lando yeah because while Glover was fantastic mm, mm. like just seeing Billy Dee Williams come in it would sort of like complete it because then each sequel trilogy episode would have a new main player yeah but I'm not sure if they were planning Leia's death for episode 9 or no I, I think it's so haywire like the rewrites and what kind of Last Jedi did to the original plan I think it's just kind of we'll never really know now because it is yeah. just so up in the air but I am excited to see him back yeah I think what all of the returning cast members have managed to be able to make me do, like, obviously they don't look the same, but as soon as they walk in and they start talking, I recognise instantly the original character, and I think Billy Dee Williams is going to be able to do that, because you look at him in interviews and he just is still that guy, he's that swaggery guy. I don't think he'll be playing the same charming Lando, but I still think he'll be a return to form for that character. Like, it'll be very much like how Han Solo was when he came back, it'll be like he never left. <clears throat> if he hits on Ray. I swear to God. What I genuinely want is a scene where um he he comes back in, and it's like, oh, is this the man to lead us? And he's like, heard my ship free. It's like, heard Han's gone. Can I come back my ship back? Just a comedic little thing like that would just work, and I think it would kind of set in some good faith. I think it. I think a moment like when Luke's in the Falcon in Last Jedi, and he's like, R two. If he's just sat there in the Falcon, and he just has a little conversation with Chewie or something or they just look at each other then he's like Chewie I'm yeah. sorry but does this mean I get the shit back <laughs> I'd love some of that what I would also like with Billy Dee Williams the fact that he's returning as Lando is like the big big complaint for me for Force Awakens was that Leia never hugged Chewie it's at yeah. the end he's like Chewie's just kind of stood there he's like that guy was my fucking life what am I going to do I want Lando to go up to him and say like Leia look mate I genuinely feel for you I get it too. Let's try and move on, though. Uh, I saw a thing after The Force Awakens just came out. Um, it was before The Last Jedi. It was a, a whole uh, Ray who who raised parents, and then I saw a little comic strip that was um, like 
actually no it was a tweet it was like who cares about who's raised who raised parents are I mean clearly Chewy is her like um, is her father is like her dad because he takes her to practice takes her to general yeah, practice yeah. He, he makes her lunch he does this that and the other makes sure she's home in time for tea well that's kind of something else as well that I hope with Lando like they don't just plaster him everywhere like they use him in good reserve like yeah you keep him as a good supporting side character hey you even use him for a set piece like you don't as much as I want to see him I hope it isn't just like they're throwing him in because they know they can like it's someone that will get them some good faith I hope it's been I'm like I hope he isn't in it and then Finn walks into frame and he just goes son it's it's something just that he's there for a smart reason he's utilised effectively and I think JJ will use him well yeah like while I don't want Chewie to die by any means Chewie dies I riot can't lose another one I, I, I hope him to be somewhere else and then they need to like he can't get to the Falcon for some reason whatever uh, and then they're there with Lando and then Lando's like don't worry I got this yeah. and then he's like I've been practising these years or yeah. whatever some, something, something like that just little yeah that works and then it'll be like in the solo where Hans flying the Falcon and it plays the original music it'll be like that except feel earned oh hell yeah definitely there'll be a lot more feeling behind it especially with the recent deaths yeah definitely do you think his mortality rate is low uh, for this film I think I think given the way they've treated I mean I could see him going but at the same time like I think it's the right decision to maybe keep him around yeah like while the whole sequel trilogy is trying to be the past is dead like the past, let the past die kill it if you have to they've already killed enough yeah like of beloved characters and maybe to show how little of a fuck J.J. Abrams gives mm, it yeah. might be funny to have like a credit scene him walking in and then he's just like you know in a like the Death Star for example they had like those high like walkways with no rails he's just yeah, walking yeah. on there and then he falls down he's like ah shit and then he dies and then he just goes directed by J.J. Abrams but just something like he's just stood there he's like listening to a customer complaint he's like on that big energy stream as the guy stood on the barriers like I just want a reel I mean they said we'd be leaning and he's just like something that would be just a beautiful meta little thing it's just like even if you have pissed everyone off with this movie then you can just throw something in like that and it'll just be worth it but I am also glad that this news has sort of united a lot of fans, especially after the whole divide of The Last Jedi. Like, a mm. lot of people have been talking positively about Star Wars again. Yeah, especially, like, with Carrie Russell coming in as well. Like, I think she... All of this, the idiots going on about how she's Ray's mum, I don't... That's not what you need to focus on. The fact that she's a great actress is what you need to focus on. Carrie yeah. Russell is really, really good. If you watch The Americans, she's great in that show. And I think it speaks well to me how good this film's going to be if someone like her is in it and is willing to sign on because she is a calibre actress and she isn't given enough credit for the work she yeah. does so I think needless to say we're confident for it I mean like I trust JJ um, another bit of casting news is Joaquin Phoenix has been officially announced it, it was rumoured before but he's been officially announced as uh, playing the Joker in the standalone prequel Joker film uh, that Martin Scorsese is attached to. No, he's not. He's not. That was, he that, not? was that was a rumor. Like he's not attached in any way, oh. shape, or form. He had someone say it for him. I think the only person that we know for definite is, is Tom McFarlane. That's the only person. 
I think that's his name, Todd McFarlane, isn't it? Isn't it Todd Phillips? Todd Phillips, what am I saying? Yeah, I said in a previous episode, that's Todd awful. Haynes, that's the director Carol, not, yeah. not this. Uh, Todd Phillips. Yeah. I, I think. I think. Well, let's just say the director from here on out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, especially seeing You Were Never Really Here. Oh, hell yeah. This I is think. a fantastic move. Uh, I just. Especially after the failure of Jared Leto. Like, he wasn't a failure. I think he could have done something. I just think it was how he was treated. Oh, yeah, definitely. But like, I mean the failure of the whole situation. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix has got me just ten times more excited than anything they do with this film. Like, I think DiCaprio would have given in, like, a phoned-in performance. I think. I don't think he would have phoned it in, but I think it would have been, you would have been able to what we've seen before. Yeah, he wouldn't have been enjoying it. And Whereas I think Joaquin Phoenix... He just commits. Like, he does. Even when he's in crap, he's giving 110% the whole time and... Just looking back on like performances he's done, where like he plays her, he plays that chirpy, happy guy, and yeah. then when he does do things like you were never really here, it's like that cold, calculating guy. I think it will be a nice blend to be able to see his talents put forward on both fronts and like well, give us something different. Well, he wouldn't have been my top pick. I can't really fault them for for mm. choosing him. I, it seems like a safe bet. Yeah, like you've just had Jared Leto, who kind of. To many people, was an unknown. I didn't really know who Jared Leto was before he was cast in Suicide Squad. Really? I hadn't really seen anything he was in. I'd seen things since then, but yeah. at the time, I wouldn't have been like, "Oh my god, it's him playing it!" Like yeah. I was with Heath Ledger because I knew Heath Ledger. But then, when you just get someone in like Joaquin, who is so known, like he's not a household name, but you point to a picture of that guy, people are gonna know him. And I think to bring someone like him in to have his name on the dotted line it brings a little bit more levity to it because I think with all of these DC news I don't believe DC news anymore until I receive like a trailer or a confirmed release date I just look past it because there's so many like hats and stupid ideas throwing around there at the moment and this seems like a secure this is actually going to happen Joaquin's involved I think the fact that you've got a name like that it just proves this film like in the bag almost because with the others it just seems shaky Okay, let, let's for a moment presume. I, th- I think it's probably been rumored and it's probably announced somewhere. But let's presume for the minute it's not part of the DCEU. Um, best choice. Yeah, best choice for it. Completely standalone. Say he's in it against Joaquin Phoenix. Who would you want to play Batman against him? Like that's. I can't have Jake Gyllenhaal. I. We had this conversation ages back about who we want to play Batman, and I'm mm. still so conflicted. Because I think Affleck has got one more good performance in him for it, and I think he could do one more like good thing. I think Affleck's in the same boat as uh, Andrew Garfield was with, with The Amazing Spider-Man. He, he tries, but he's just in such lesser films. Oh, hell yeah. Like, yeah. he's constrained. Like, um, Andrew Garfield said in, I think it was Variety's Actors on Actors interview yeah. I think he said uh, people were trying to make money not a movie yeah which, like, is, which just... is because he said how he'd be trying to talk to people like oh so how do you think this should go and well there was passion behind it by the people involved it, it wasn't as much passion as it could have been like it could it could have been a lot more mm. oh well, why don't you try this and try that and then see how it really goes with this because there are like deleted scenes of that where his dad comes back and Garfield gives fantastic oh films, hell yeah mm. but then it's on the cutting room floor and like there are so many moments that 
it could have excelled and like he tried and I feel like Affleck's doing the exact same yeah and I think the fact that he had that capability when they were making the Batman movie and it was his the Batman movie like he had some rumours that I'm going to try this I'm going to do this and then when he gets that taken away from him he's like you watch Justice League and he just looks so dumb especially with the reshoots he's just like nah and like you ask as well like who do you want to see Batman like my other question is is this going to be an origin film because I don't want it as an origin film like people complain about the Prometheus movies about how no one really cares about how the aliens are being born because that's why the aliens are so great you don't know anything about them same with Predators it's the same with the Joker he doesn't get more interesting when you know who he is he's interesting because he is just that figmented character that he just can this, do anything yeah I don't care where he's come from really like, I mean you can tell it right with the killing joke but at the same time that's not something that I need to know to make him interesting just do this as like an established film Joaquin is the Joker when it starts like you maybe do flashbacks I don't care but make it a Joker film I don't need another origin story yeah is it just it will just stand apart as another thing that I'm not interested in if they're willing to try something different it's like yeah we're going to do this wholeheartedly like we say right out the barrel he is the Joker you've got to jump onto this then I'm interested but I mean all in all I'm excited for it he's yeah, I mean, we haven't really recently. heard anything to not be excited about, really. I mean, when you have just watched things like you were never really here, it does strike you with confidence because he's just a fucking maniac in that film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's our news for this week then. We're going to be moving now into our reviews and we have a film now that I've been waiting ages to talk about on this show, especially with this Max. We've kind of reserved our thoughts with it. And that is hereditary just I think maybe one of the best made horror films I've ever seen quite frankly just how meticulously crafted it is just well performed and at moments just genuinely scary oh petrifying moments um. like when I watched this film I often enter horror films with the notion that not very much scares me personally like I'm scared wholeheartedly by things like claustrophobia but characters haven't really scared me there's only really two things that do like um it's Pinhead from the original Hellraiser movies and then the Weeping Angels there were moments in this where it was I was in bed at night and I was wondering if someone was stood in the corner of my room (laughs) and it was that kind of like oh crap the way Ariasta Asta the the director constructs fear Mm. it's not Every man's it is the film isn't for everyone. Oh hell yeah! This but is... the way that it constructs and shows you, but doesn't show you at the same time, and you're like, did that? Did that happen? And then, like, for example, this is full spoilers on this. By the way, if you haven't oh, seen yeah. it, go out and do yourself the favor of seeing it. This is a life changing horror film for you, a horror fan. But the way that it. It shows the little girl hitting her head, but then you're like, he's just driving. Is she okay? Is she Mm. just in the back? Is she concussed? Is she passed out? Is she dead? And then how it lingers on that shot afterwards of her head. It's, It's some of the most grotesque and primal horror I've ever seen. It's like 
very much in the sense of um, what I love about The Shining is how about it's like a human emotional psychological horror and then it becomes spiritual spooky horror a lot of the horror in that film is like the brutality of the act like it focuses on the head as you've said and then when he doesn't even know how to like tell his mum the only way he can commute is just to show her the body and let her scream just the pain of her like wailing on the floor I just want to die and yet then when it moves into the supernatural when he is she's smashing her face against the attic door when she's like cutting off her head with the rope it's just such a myriad blend that works so well together and it just flips on his head because the film kind of essentially changes halfway through from a psychological to a supernatural and it's done flawlessly you are invested in on how it works yeah it sets up this interesting world that you become invested in with the characters and and you can sort of see things foreshadowed like when she eats the cake but then towards the end you're like what the hell is happening here yeah I think it is definitely a film that requires multiple viewings in the sense that what I loved about Get Out last year was that was a horror film you could watch twice and you would get so much more subtext. Hereditary was exactly the same. Like when you see the little things about like knowing that Charlie is possessed in that film and then when she does the like and you can tell in these moments where it's like she's seeing her aunt, her grandma, sorry, and they're going through these things. It's just so well laid, so well put down. Like the fact that she's eating the sweets, and you think it's that pain and testing of whether the girl's gonna die. And then when it goes in for the cake, and it says like, "Oh, they're not giving it to everyone." Is that mm. like pain and testing him, or is that her saying, "Please, pain is using me. He knows that if I eat this, I'm gonna die." And at the same time, you look at the character of Joan, like the helpful lady, and it's like. Christ, she was so evil and you didn't even spot it. There were like little things where it's like, oh, they just run into each other at the, the grocery market. It's no, she has been waiting there for her. She's just fucking about with the things she's putting into the boot. I presumed it would be more predictable and it would be like, oh, it was all in her head. Like when she first went to her apartment and she wasn't there about mm. halfway, no, towards the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she looks at the rug and everything. I thought, oh, it, oh no, it's just going to be predictable. It's going to be she didn't really exist it was all in her head and then it doesn't do that and it just shocks you yeah I think it very much lives up to the name of hereditary in the sense that you think the whole film is about the passing of a mental illness like how it's been passed down to these people and her family like, and how she's been told that her father killed herself her like her father starved to death her brother killed herself her mother's gone and died with no friends or family and then how it kind of builds in her mind it builds the horror and then when she finally realises that nothing has happened that she's been lied to her whole life and then it's the supernatural element that comes in is able to take over her mind the demon is what possesses her to do these terrifying things that was why I found it so intricate because I think any other horror film could have just done it set up like oh it's just this dark character but I think just to put so many layers into the subtext and just to what mm. she meant and to see her react in these moments it felt earned and it felt so stunningly human that they talk like real people and they fear the living shit out of what's happening like real people I'm going to make an argument here and say that the best scene in the entire film is just after the little girl has died mm and they're eating dinner and then how that tension builds and then how it's like I am your mother you don't talk to me like that you little shit 
and then just how it suddenly changes and this father trying to keep the family together after this oh, tragedy. I mean, and, yeah, just a little side note, he deserves a hell of a lot of commendation. Like, I know oh, yeah. Tony Collette's been getting a lot of praise, but Christ, he was good as well, like, really. Yeah. And it was the dude from The Usual Suspects. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, like, he doesn't have a lot to work with, but what he does do, he, he does really well with, yeah. because... It's not always easy to be a supporting role in these sort of things because it's just like it can be pretty one note of yes, darling, and yeah, making sure they're okay, all right. Yeah. But here, he really adds levels to it, like when he's at the traffic lights. Yeah, like um, he reacts as a human does. Yeah, like fantastic performances all around. And I think the performances are so primal in what makes the terror work. I think particularly Alex Wolf, like he really works in making you not only feel the actual terror of the scene of what's happening, but when it's revealed that like Payman has entered like I think his name was Sean, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Sean, like when it's entered him, like you look back on his performance and you say there's been so many things that they've just been setting it up. It's like when they go they did the first um seance and he's like, Do you not feel the air around you? It's like they just set up so much of just subtext and just things to look back on and it was I mean a technically flawless film in my opinion just the way the horror was shot I think in a lesser horror film where you know where she's on the ceiling mm. and it does like the little scuttle by in a lesser horror film that would have been a jump scare that would have been like the big whoa like thrown in on that whereas in this it was just so subtle and it was just the image of it that was allowed to scare you I saw this film with my father and my sister. When we came out, we were discussing it and we were talking about all our theories about it because, you know, it's a film mm. that raises many questions. Yeah. And while I found it to be very scary uh, and in moments completely artistically beautiful yeah. while horrifying, um, I was speaking to my sister and she said, Oh, wasn't that scary? I was like, Why? Uh, I, I thought it was good in these scenes because you relate to the characters and sunny out of nowhere and then there's a naked man in the house <laughs> yeah, I was going through these lists of reasons and talking about it and how meaningful it was she was like nah Jake there aren't enough jump scares and I looked at her and thought are you bloody serious it's... because while a lot of people are praising it for how inventive it is and how it's a horror film that's actually scary because we're having some a good lot of horror recently mm, definitely there's also so much crap horror out there and I think Buckets. I think she stands for and speaks for probably the most I don't want to say not enlightened film goes but I'd say the general public with horror because they're used to thinking jump scares are scary they're used to thinking that the tension just before the jump scare is something that's petrifying to be feared, whereas instead it's it can be quite cheap. Yeah, it's the cutaway of hard built tension that the director has masterfully worked into the film and has worked very hard to be able to not only build but sustain, and then to just have something like a jump scare kind of ruin it. It's like a it's a freaking epidemic. It like passes through so many horror films at the moment that that's what so many people attach themselves to whereas for me like I watch shit ton of classic horror films I like mm. I don't mind jump scares I think they're very effective used in the right way and when they're measured but for me it wasn't like those little 
jump scare things that scared me it was like the quiet moments it was specifically yeah. like my favourite shot in the entire film is after she's just been possessed and it's like it's the shot of the house in daylight that quickly snaps to black and it's just you can see those naked people outside the house yeah and it's just the subtleties of is what makes me gravitate towards that film not just that it's in your face it is willing to be slow it's willing to not cater to those audiences Although, that's why I like it so much. Well, I found the imagery all disturbing and like at the end when the full transformation comes through Oof. and it has the little girl's head yeah. on that crucified thing. And I find the stuff... That, this makes me think of like tangibility and horror. Um, it makes me think that in the school when he was freaking out and he was slamming his head against the desk, I found that Personally, I found that a lot scarier and a lot creepier than the final shot because while all the final bits was mm. petrifying, I feel like there's a relatability on being able to put yourself in that situation. Mm. And while there's no problem with having the whole balls to the walls, the whole demon coming through and everything like that, I personally felt the other scenes to be more effective. And I think that's also why I found the dinner scene more like most effective in the whole piece because it did just put these interesting, complex and flawed characters into this scene and you can just place yourself in it. And that's why I think it will work and I think it will personally be remembered in years to come because it is a horror film that affects you on different levels. Like you've just said, it's like the psychological elements that have scared you and remembered you about it. Whereas for me, it was that alongside the supernatural elements. Like just some of those scenes where it's like they turn off the lights and they're just still in the corner. Yeah. Those stuck with me because they were just so well crafted, I think. And just, you can also like get some of these fans who are just going to love this film for the little metaphors it puts in. Like the fact that it starts off in the doll's house that does the zoom in. Just the fact that it's like, it's her commentary on her trying to want to control her life. It's all the little subtle things that I think will bring fans back to it for years to come that will make yeah. them consistently interested in it. And it's just, it's probably my third favourite film of the year. Like, I think it's the best performance of the year from Toni Collette. I think she definitely deserves an Oscar for that. I think she was incredible in that film. Just for that dinner scene alone. Like, yeah. the energy she brings to it and she makes you believe it. Like, And then how she can just kind of flick in between those emotions just so much that she can be very blunt. And then certainly certain lines, she's quite funny. And then even when her husband's just burned alive and she's like there, she's screaming, she's wailing, and then her face just contorts to show that she's possessed. Yeah. That's a hell of a talent from an actor to be able to pull off something so difficult like that. And it just speaks of a prestige for me that is not often present in horror anymore. Like I say, this is personally one of the best made horror films I've seen since maybe The Babadook. Like to be able to do so much on that metaphorical and subtextual level and then also on a physical and human level it just relentlessly impressed me like I'd say A Quiet Place mm-hmm. is fantastic horror that's more sort of mainstream and I'm not yeah. saying that negatively in any no, way no, I loved no. A Quiet Place um, but I'd say that's more for a lot more audiences whereas Hereditary is a lot more niche it, it's definitely not for everyone no I I I've seen it twice and it's like on oh, the first viewing I saw it people were laughing second viewing people were running out of cinema 
Yeah. It was just so different in that sense of how it affects multiple people, and I think we haven't had horror like that in a long while. And with just going back to jump scares, they can be used effectively. Like in Creep, for example, they used effectively because it helps slowly bring it up, and then when the camera's moving slowly, and it helps amp up the tension, whereas it's used lazily a lot. But oh, that was my little thing about jump scares because Creep is fantastic. Everyone should go watch it. Um, jump scares work, just not when they're frequent. Yeah. That's why I love The Shining because I think there's like only really one big jump scare and that's when you see the Grady twins cut down. Yeah. That's the big and you remember it consistently whereas with a lot of horror films it is jump scares every time they go around a corner. Yeah. So that's why it worked and this film just spoke of a higher level of craft because they didn't need to resort to things like that they had the ability they knew they had such a strong script and what the people were saying and what they were doing was going to be enough to scare people certain people I mean other than just throwing like a loud noise at the screen and that's why I respect it yeah yeah this is a fantastically crafted film and like uh, I think it had one of the best trailer trolls in it since possibly I know it doesn't seem that long ago but Infinity War where it had yeah. the picture of you no, know, it had the shot of Tony looking all sad and glum and then finally when you see the film you're given the context of it and like here where it shows in the trailer that funeral yeah and you're yeah. like oh it's for the mother it's like no it's and then it's like no it's for the daughter and then just that whole that whole thing in general yeah just the whole idea of them actually because a lot of films don't really have the guts per se to kill off kids to kill off pregnant people and while this film doesn't kill off pregnant people it has the guts to do that to a child Mm. and then show it so grotesquely but it never feeling like it's just there to shock shock. because while it gets a jolt reaction from the audience it feels earned and then how it lingers on it it's not just like trying to be subversive or anything it, mm. it feels natural yeah and it's lingering on it not just for like oh we want to show you the goal we want to make you feel sick it's lingering on it because it's layering subtext it's like it's saying how payment has orchestrated for this act to happen and that's what I like about it but also how the hell is this only a 15 yeah this was stupendously graphic I think the fact that it's got no nudity is probably the reason that it's a 15 it does have a little bit of nudity though like not a lot, but oh yeah, the end yeah, yeah but like, there. you don't really but see like, full front. That shot of even just the kid's head, that yeah, I feel like this film should be an eighteen. I I wouldn't disagree. Like, I mean, look at Jaws; that was rated, I think it was a PG when that first came out. Yeah. <laughs> now look how things have changed. I think in time, who knows? It may get recertified, but I think this is the kind of horror that not only chills you, like when. You remember at the beginning of the film when the funeral and like Charlie's looking down at the moment that the guy just smiles at her yeah. and then that's the naked guy. Like it's those little chilling moments and then it's those horribly grotesque moments, like you said, with the head that just scares you on so many levels. I think it will affect you psychologically, if not just emotionally. Yeah, like you can be scared, experience. but then it will think like, oh, like. 
I needed a cup of coffee after I'd seen this. Like, I needed... I need a cold shower. Yeah. You can't watch this and then go back into it. It's watch it, think for days, and then go back with your best intentions. Like, <laughs> there's so much to pick apart here and so much to dissect and analyse because it's just such a tightly packed, well-woven together story that you'll struggle to find a better made film. I'm not saying that there aren't better films out there. I'm saying that the way that it's made and constructed and just the director's vision being put on screen. Hats off to A24. Hats off. Oh, yeah. Like, this is one of the best things they've ever made. Um, If it's more like this this year, then... (sighs) Christ, we're in for a good year. And just... When you can make a film like this that's the equivalent to Mother or Get Out, where... I walk out of the theatre and I've got nine different theories about what it's really about and I want to go and instantly see it again you know you've made a good horror film which is a good film in general with Mother I've found that it hit you hard and it suddenly like keeps packing punches and it gets into you that way and it beats you down whereas with Hereditary I find that it seeps into your skin yeah. it slowly gets in um, like with Mother and like with Hereditary and like Killing of Sacred Deer it doesn't let you go it weeks does it after when it you've wants seen to, it yeah. it's just the way that it seeps into your skin where you're unaware of it like it's slowly taking over until the end where it's all you can think about and you're trying to figure everything out but you just can't I think it just gets you in little ways as well in the sense that you've been making a glass of water and then someone just behind you just goes and you're just like instantly drawn back into oh fuck it it's here there's little subtleties that remain with you it just speaks to the prestige of this film and then we go into our second review which is uh, Netflix's 2018 release Cargo starring Martin Freeman it's a zombie film, but it's so much more than the regular zombie film. It doesn't suffer from all the all, all the regular things you get from poltergeist films because while it does hop on that bandwagon, they make it stand out so differently and effectively, not only with the setting, but with how the actual creatures are designed mm. that you can't help but love it. This is without doubt one of the best Netflix originals that's ever been made Mm. just their willingness to try and be daring with this medium I think the zombie medium has become so constrained by what shows like The Walking Dead present it as it's like this the survival story we're taking the fight to the zombies this isn't that this is that beautiful story about what humanity is within that scenario and how like you try and reconnect with people that you've lost but then also how you try and have to reconnect with new people and I think that it builds just so immensely strongly that those two family narratives how it's the closing of one family where he loses his wife and yet it's the birth of another family where he does get in with Tui Mm. and he does like they they both try and care for the daughter as the parents did and it just it takes a risk and it's just engaging from start to finish like the quiet moments to the tense moments this is in no way detrimental to the film but it felt almost to me like it was a video game like a video game film because it felt like it had 
side quests with the different characters in then mm. like then going off and having to restart the pumps and everything like that yeah. like it felt that's not disjointed disjointed is not the word but it just felt very much like the world was lived in like it's not just him going to someone and then being like oh yeah we'll do that for you we'll look after your daughter it's he has to work for it he has to earn it and then like also some of the inventive ways of like um how this horrible dude like keeps people in cages Mm. and then attracts them that way just fantastic film no even just the way that the zombies are presented like it, it looks like marmalade yeah it's, them, but it's like this horrible thick it's and then when they bury their heads in the earth and it's just like he's trying to do the same it's just foul like yeah. I don't think we've seen like I think we've become a bit desensitised to gore given the sight of the walking dead but but it does this in a unique yeah, way yeah it's just it's so it's, different where it's like oh god like it, it, it's not a zombie walking into a bit of broken glass and then the skin coming off it, it's just more relatable like again with the tangibility and horror like you can like you can just see that sort of happening rather than the whole like it, it doesn't go into oh that's just a monster that doesn't look like us that it, it looks like people yeah and that's why I think it makes those emotional moments where they do have to say goodbye to the ones they love all the more impactful because it's not like you say like the skin's removed from the head this is that person that I loved like Tui when he looks at his dad and the the well and it's like I can't let him go because this is my fucking dad like he's got this thing that's wrong with him but that's still the person that I know in there and that's why it's just it works so strongly like there's so many recountable moments like when he's having to pull himself out of the car when his wife is stuck in there, mm. when he's having to, like, push himself through that des- desert as much as it kills him to do it. And he's like, come on, tell me what your language is. And then just that final shot of where he's just walking into the camp, it's just iconic screen moment after iconic screen moment. Martin Freeman's having a hell of a year with smaller films, like with mm. ghost stories and with this, like... Yes, he was in The Hobbit, and yes, he was in Sherlock, like, massive things. But just the smaller character stuff, where he can experiment more and show more of what he's capable as as an actor, whereas, like, in The Hobbit, he was just walking about. And while I'm not saying he gave a bad performance in The Hobbit by any means, he was given a lot more to do here. And I also like how, um, even though when he lost his wife, he then found Tui, so he then found another strong woman because Tui had built herself up and rather than just being weak from the world just bringing her down she was who she wanted to be and she believed what she wanted to believe because that's how she got herself through the days Hmm. and I think it speaks president as well to like the capability of Martin Freeman when he can appear in probably two of the best indie films we've seen this year I know released on Netflix but it's still pretty much an indie film and yet he can then also appear in big tentpole films like Black Panther yeah like he can that's the thing I love about Martin Freeman he's just such a versatile actor like you can put him in this dark sadistic drama you can put him in your big summer tentpole movies and then you can put him in a silly little comedy like Nativity he's just such an engaging and just relatable and just comedic and interesting performer that every time he does something you're just interested to see it 
you know, like you compare his performance in this to his one in the office it just shows how different his performances are and how he embodies different characters yeah and it's a rare feat that I think we don't often see we don't get to see enough of it where I think he kind of resembles what the old fashioned movie star was in the sense that they could be an everyman they could mm. do anything they could be in what they not in what they wanted what they were needed in and I think he's one of those people like he is a bankable star and I think it's unfortunate that people are only realising that now as he is getting older and he's going to be a like he's not old old but like we're not going to get as many we're not going to get brilliant like a born films film as we could have yeah we're not going to get a born film and that's a little bit of a sad thing but I think as well like Netflix at the moment they've got this model of like oh, let's get an indie film let's get a small film let's package it let's patent it as a bigger thing this is where the Netflix model is really working because I think this is one of yeah. those films that deserves to be seen Annihilation or Bright would have been something that people went to see at the theatres because it would have had that audience that would have gone to see it this isn't something that I think would have gone down nearly as well mm. and I think the fact that it was on something like Netflix ultimately saved it and made it so that it was as popular as it was right so that's our review of Cargo um, highly recommended if you haven't seen it already why were you listening to that because we just spoiled it for you yeah it's on Netflix get a hold of it oh quickly just remembered about that the final shot uh, of him going through with his two girls on his on, on his back I thought oh god is, is he dead and I was like oh okay he is bloody hell they did it they went there and then just before he was killed and they were like and she was like no stop and then she went to bring oh. the perfume out I was like oh god if that perfume brings him back I swear to god I'm calling out of this that the whole thing would have been like it would have completely negated the rest of the film mm. as it would have just been a cheap thing but it was just that beautiful moment where Tui does it and then they then kill him yeah. and it was just such a beautiful heartfelt little little nuanced moment that you don't get in everything yeah and I think that really distinguishes it apart yeah, from it would be something that I think we come to remember in years to come like when we look back on certain films with certain endings that would be one that I think stands out as being just not what we ever thought it could have been yeah and you don't ever expect it to be that you think he's going to make it at the end and then when he doesn't it is a little more heart shattering because it, he's just a great guy yeah so that was our review of Cargo highly recommended um, now we're going to go into quickfire question first one back since the hiatus and we're going to bring the scoreboard back down to zero wipe the slate clean wipe the slate clean as it were um, and we're going to come up with a better system on judging them uh, if we have a guest host on then the guest will uh, no then whoever's on or like if we have a third presenter on then they'll be able to referee as it were and be able to be like I prefer this argument I prefer this answer or whatever yeah. um, but when it's just the two of us uh, we'll then put the poll out on Twitter we'll get um, other people's opinions on it and then the next episode whoever has the whoever has the, yeah, the most votes, one with the most yeah. votes they'll be the winner so we're not deciding it in unless it's a guest host we're not deciding it in the episode 
We'll then come back to it the next week and then bring the scores up from there. Yeah. And if there are no votes on the poll, there will be a fair systematic form of determining who is the winner. Like who receives a point. So the quickfire question is where someone proposes a question, we both give an answer. It can be about a film, it can be how we propose and create our own film or anything like that. Um, but yes. Right, so my quickfire question is... Make it good. I'm prepared. So my quickfire question is, what is the best unoriginal soundtrack for a film? And my argument is going to be Baby Driver. Because... It, because the music is to the beat of the film, it's edited with that in mind, it has the lyrics in the background, it has all these beautiful Edgar Wright-isms that just make it feel so lived in and so tight and compact, and then the little details in the background, like uh, the black heart going red when she walks past yeah. in the coffee shop, and it's just these small moments with how it's not only like it has a great song to go with it, like to go with a certain scene, but it's how the scene also moulds around the song as they work in tandem and conjunction and they just work together rather than it setting the tone. Because not only does it set the tone, but it also sets the pace, it sets everything else. And it just, like, um, the actors were sent the scripts with the with a CD with the songs to listen to because then they can get a sense for what's being described um, in words in the script. Mm. And before Edgar Wright started filming, he made sure that he had all the rights to the songs because of how integral it was. And the whole reason why we got the film is because for years, Edgar Wright was listening to Bell Bottoms and was like, I'd picture a car chase to this song. And that's almost like just how this film works together. And obviously this doesn't go towards my argument, but not only does it, have great unoriginal music the original soundtrack is also fantastic as well but yeah I'm going to say Edgar Wright's 2017 fantastic Baby Driver in my opinion has the best unoriginal soundtrack to a film I think that's not only a fantastic pick it's one of the best things about the film I think it does play amazingly into the way it's crafted I think it's a great question as well because we have had an amazing year for soundtracks like the Black Panther Mm. unoriginal soundtrack was beautiful the way Kendrick Lamar did that not to mention also as well the hereditary soundtrack worked perfectly. Mm. But I think my pick is going to be a little bit more of an on-the-nose one, but I'm going to go for James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy, the awesome mix volume one. I think mine works specifically in the sense that it plays into specific character moments, like it establishes who these people are, that moment of just come and get your love, and when they're da- he's dancing like that, it just establishes who that character is to a flaw, and it's memorable. Every single song in this film is memorable. Like when it's playing, like, Do You Like Pina Colada? As I just said, Come and Get Your Love. All of them are meticulously played into certain points. And I think it also plays in very well to what the style of the film is. It is that hyper-reality. It is junky. It's jumping. Like, it's moving around. It's fast-paced. It's just this off-the-wall crazy thing. I think the fact that it features so many 80s things, it works well to contain it in that world. But then also... I think the fact that it becomes an iconic soundtrack, it proceeds past what the film is. I love The Awesome Mix Volume 1 because there are songs on it for everyone. There's a mellow song if you're feeling down. There's a happy song you need to get up and groove. There's songs for kids. There's songs for adults. There are songs that you will recognise. There are songs you're probably going to hate too. But no doubt you will get some sort of connection out of at least one of them from The Awesome Mix. It also works in the sense that 
when Volume 2 was announced, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I mean, people were just as excited for what Volume 2 of the awesome mix was going to be as they were the first one. I think that's why I'd personally put it out. I think Baby Driver works well if you use the music to craft the scene, but I think by itself it's not that brilliant a soundtrack like <gasps> i know you, i know i know personally i downloaded the soundtrack got, got rid of a few of them quite quickly some of them still remain whereas the awesome mix i will keep on my phone i'll be scrolling through that find out people coming over people are going to enjoy that plus i think yours is like used very specifically to attribute to the craft of the film like to build in certain character beats certain sub not subtext um set pieces and then like to build in like certain little moments for the film like when you say like when he's walking through like it's establishing like what this film is going to be mine establishes a tone and also it builds into what the characters are like those moments of just pure glee and ecstasy and then those dark moments and I think it does very well in the sequels too but that's I'm not going to argue that because that's cheating but yeah so I'd say it's the awesome mix from Guardians of the Galaxy I was going to be very harsh when I asked the question and be like, so what's the best original sound, no, unoriginal soundtrack to a film? For example, Volume Mix, no, also Mix Volume 1. And then, oh, my answer is this, and then you'd have had to go like, oh, shit, 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 shit. I would have, like, I would have played Devil's Advocate, I would have gone Volume 2, I would have just <laughs> beaten you down, I would have... But no, I think they're two extremely strong soundtracks, like, they're all memorable, there's that... I hate to use the tagline for Baby Driver. There is that one killer track to all of them. Like, there's always there's that song in both of them that you love for different viewers. And uh, again, this is just part of the discussion, but I feel like it could be argued against that you don't listen to the Baby Driver soundtrack because me and my mates we put that on, like for example, yeah, especially in the car driving. Oh hell yeah! Uh, I mean, I'd hate to be hooked on a film. Yeah, Jake is just leave. He's just looking at me now. <laughs> um, okay. So that was the quick fire question for the week. We're now going to move into a segment that we've thoroughly, thoroughly neglected over the past few weeks. That's what's appertaining. We'll be discussing what we got, basically in the way of films over the past few weeks, and then we're also discussing kind of what we're working on, what we're enjoying, what we're watching, just basically what's going on in our lives. I mean, my bargain bin has been pretty good this week. Managed to pick up. Um, you were never really here, which was a much longer way to release something up and waiting to get my hands on that for ages. Also managed to get like a, a nice little free deal. I've got Apocalypse Now, Signs, and then I also believe what was the, uh, Live Die Tomorrow, Live Die Repeat, what am I saying? Edge of Tomorrow. And then also The Exorcist with it. So that was a nice little four pack of classics, not fully, and then have the nice little You Were Never Really Here with it, which is kind of a nice little one to get. Since December, I have bought so many DVDs and Blu-rays. Oh, we're going from December, are we? <laughs> I have no clue what to do with my... Like, I have no clue. Like, we're redecorating my room at the moment, and I had to put them all into boxes, and then we had to buy some more boxes from the shop, and then some more boxes. Yeah. Because I'm going to admit, I have a bit of a problem. Likewise. Um I think it's going to be like shaving off an addict when we have to work out which ones we're going to take to uni and which ones we're going to leave behind. Um, but yes, I'll give people the full rundown next week. Oh. Mysterious, I know. 
Dun, dun, dun. Actually, no, not next week, the week after that. Go on, man. Because, yeah, I can't think of them off the top of my head. <laughs> so, we'll move in now to kind of like what we're doing. Like, What's that for saying? Yeah, as we said in previous weeks, we're kind of just like working on crap ton of films, like working our way through mem- like filmographies and just trying to get done what we can. Like, for me, TV wise, I've recently just finished the um, James Cameron's Story of Sci Fi. This was incredible. Absolutely loved it. I mean, they advertise it incorrectly. You think it's going to be long discussions with Del Toro and Spielberg and Cameron, but that's about a sixth of what it is. There are so many other conversations with like film critics and like cinema photographers and sound designers, and I think their voice also works into it really well. And it's a great show in the sense that there's so many different types of episodes like there's one on monsters one on time travels one on robots like if you're a sci-fi fan there'll be something to enjoy with it and I hope to be next week starting Big Little Lies finally get into that finally enjoy it alongside um, my rereading of um, Sharp Objects which I want to get in before the Amy Adams show releases next time I think it's on Showtime which I'm excited for because it's the guy by the girl who wrote Gone Girl so I'm hoping that'll be another great show because I also greatly enjoyed the book when I read it the first time um, I've noticed I've been watching a lot of Rob Reiner films with like uh, This Is Spinal Tap and oh, yeah. um, also Misery Stephen King's one oh. absolutely fantastic but I've just noticed because I've been like putting on classic films trying to get through more classic ones and then just been noticing directed by Rob Reiner I'm like oh Good bloke. What a good bloke. This guy. Um, but He's I've also, places. in terms of television, I've been watching a lot of HBO shows. Um, Wonderful. I binged all of Silicon Valley. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> it was brilliant. Can't recommend that enough. Um, Big Little Lies. That was fantastic. Such a satisfying ending, and I can't wait to see what they do in series two, especially really with this cast, and then bringing Meryl yeah. Streep in. Um, That's the reason I jumped in. I thought Meryl Streep. That says it all. Um, also. Last night, I started the first episode of HBO's new Amy Adams one, Sharp Objects. Any good? Fantastic. Sophia Lillis is also in it. She's great. I think and we know exactly why he got into this show. And just the performances, the direction, everything about it, you can tell that it's high budget without it being boasty about it because it, it doesn't necessarily be like, oh, it's been over-budgeted, oh, it's been under-budgeted it just feels right and I also like the aesthetic even though they did steal my aesthetic of lower cases and Times New Roman but you know I'll let it slide because it's a very good series Um, I can't wait to see where it goes and as Zach said it's Gillian Flynn yeah I always say Gillian but you say Gillian writer of Gone Girl and I gave my sister the book uh, about a year ago now and she read it fairly quickly because she's a fast reader and she said it was absolutely fantastic yeah the book so is I cannot wait. really great yeah just to also tag on because you were talking about your directors I didn't get a chance to jump in on mine I'm doing all the Hitchcocks at the moment recently watched um, The Trouble with Harry <sighs> Christ that's incredible these are just the greatest films I've ever had the pleasure <laughs> of seeing in some cases and I think by the end of this journey I'm going to be a different different man not so much a different filmmaker when you've just seen this many Hitchcock films because they're all just incredible I've also finally finished the Alien franchise Woo! while it oh, thank God. had its ups and it definitely had its downs 
Um, overall, I enjoyed it a lot. I absolutely loved it. Um, and my next franchise to finish is going to be Rocky. Oh, I love you, man. Like, people can't see, but I've been waiting for him to watch these for forever. <laughs> so I'm so happy he's finally getting into them. Yep, that's what's been appertaining. So, now we'll move into our final segment of the show, and it is Recommendation of the Week. It's going to be my turn this week, and I'm going to bring you what is a thinking man's piece, and it's going to be something that there are very big demographics of people who will love this film. There are even bigger demographics of people who will hate it. It is shot so uniquely, it feels like it's a real experience that you're seeing what's happening to these people is actually happening the dialogue feels so fresh and vibrant it feels like what actual people say it doesn't feel crafted or constructed it feels like they left a camera there and they just let it roll the plot is one of the most subversive incredible twisting things that i've ever come across the premise of it and the ramifications of what it states at the ending how it creates one of the most memorable science fiction film endings that i've seen in a long while i sound like i'm overhyping it but trust me this film will throw you for aloof, it will have you thinking, and it will just make you want to go back and pinpoint little moments that just speak to so many premises and interesting things. If you're a physicist or a real science kind of person, you're going to be amazed by this film and how highly it holds up certain theories and certain like concepts. And it just draws so many parallels to Primer in the way that they clearly don't have a lot of budget and yet they make it work with just such a simple premise. And that is the 2013 film, Coherence. This is a difficult one to get your hands on, but if you can get a hold of it, watch it, because it is something that, at the very least, will have you scratching your head, and those are the perfect kind of films for me. So, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend. So, that was the Sour Popcorn Podcast for this week. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's nice to be back into the old schedule, like kind of the old format, old routine. And in the famous words of Charlie Brooker, go away. <laughs>